0: Peter Oakes is the Edgar Bromfman Professor of Modern Judaic Studies at the University of Virginia. He co-directs the UVA Research Initiative on Religion, Politics, and Conflict, and Religious Studies Graduate Program in Scripture, Interpretation, and Practice. Peter Oakes co-founded the Societies for Textual Reasoning and for Scriptural Reasoning, and among his publications are 200 essays in Jewish Philosophy and Theology, Pragmatism and Semiotics, The Logic of Scripture, Religion, and Conflict, Comparative Abrahamic Scripture Traditions, and Jewish-Christian Theological Dialogue. Among his many books are Another Reformation, Post-Liberal Christianity and the Jews, Breaking the Tablets, Jewish Theology After Shoah, and Purse, Pragmatism, and the Logic of Scripture. In what follows, I discuss with Peter his CTI project called How to Diagnose Religious Dimensions of Ongoing Violent Conflicts. So, Peter Oakes, thanks for being here on the podcast, and I'd like to start just talking about when were you first at CTI, and what is your
1: ongoing relationship with CTI? I think my first time was in 1991, 92, around there. It was when Daniel Hardy, of blessed memory, was the director. And
0: then you, know, you were involved kind of off and on th- throughout the past couple mm-hmm, of decades. Mm-hmm. So maybe speak a bit about that. And, and, and in that regard, I'd also like to hear about scriptural reasoning and how it was involved, um, how it kind of, in a sense,
1: was related to your time at CTI. Sure, sure. Yeah. As I reflected on my being here this, these few months, I realized that the main turning events in my latter half of my life uh, as an academic have taken place here. Mm. Uh, when I worked, when I was with Daniel Hardy here many years ago, I was completing a book on later called Peirce, Pragmatism, and the Logic of Scripture. So that's sort of the defining part of my philosophic research. It's about applications of formal work in philosophy to understanding the reasoning that's implicit in scriptural interpretation in the Abrahamic traditions. So that that was here, and I met, as I spoke increasingly with uh, Dan Hardy and then his son-in-law, David Ford, something, a second thing happened which defined much of my work since then. We spoke, the the three of us, uh, about our mutual restlessness with uh, academic approaches to the study of religion and of scripture. We were interested in more tradition-based studies. And we were also interested in peering more deeply into the contribution scripture, scriptural texts have made to reasoning in the West, and could make much more to a non-divided reasoning, that is, a reasoning in which the heart and the mind are integrated, in which uh, tradition and critical philosophy and science could be integrated. So it started here.
0: And script- what, what yeah. role was played in that uh, in the, by the fact that it was you know interreligious? There were Christian scholars, there were Jewish scholars like yourself involved, and, and how did that play into the,
1: the burgeoning of that discipline of scriptural reasoning? Well, the, the stimulus to a movement and a society that's still active called the Society for Scriptural Reasoning was in this three-way dialogue. And we came to sort of characterize scriptural reasoning as study across the borders of scriptural traditions. And it was that movement across borders that was nurtured here. Because on the one hand, this is a rare place where deep faith commitment um, can flourish alongside critical inquiry. Very rare. I don't know another place like this in that regard, and so it was the in-betweenness of our studies here that stimulated some perceptions Dan and and, and David and I had about what could happen in the study of Scripture.
0: How did you initially you know, get involved with CTI? Did you already know Dan Hardy and and, or did you just find out about it through some other way?
1: I was at that. I'm now. I now. Uh, teach in the last 22 years at the University of Virginia, but at that time, for about 10 years, I was teaching at Drew University in New Jersey, nearby, Mm -hmm. and I don't recall. I simply applied once. I didn't know Dan Hardy. I was shocked to meet him. (laughs) And things went from there. Things went from there.
0: So maybe we could get into more about your current project here at CTI um, in this workshop on religion and violence. And, you know, part of the story there, I think, would be interesting is how it came out of your work with the United States State Department.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, if if you don't mind, once again, to refer back to what was developed at CTI. Uh, after we began this Jewish Christian and then Muslim Jewish Christian society for a study across difference, I came back here for a time, uh, not as a resident, but to run a... Uh, a semester's research program of Muslim, Jewish, and Christian scholars that eventuated in a book on crisis and leadership in Abrahamic traditions. So that interaction, about maybe 11, 11 years ago. Okay. Um,
0: so maybe around 2008, eight nine. somewhere around Yeah, right I there. think it was
1: around there. Mm-hmm. That, that interaction helped stimulate a number of us in the group uh, to look at not only the academic significance of study across difference, but also the peace implications of a form of study that could generate, we didn't know what yet, but we knew it would generate something beyond what we saw, something more, broader implications for inter-Abrahamic peace. Uh, So that was that for the time. Then uh, several years after that event, uh, after that time here, I got a phone call uh, out of the blue from uh, Jerry White, who had just become the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Now, shall I tell you a little bit about the so Secretary of State at that yes. point? And, okay And then I'll, then I'll come back to sure. my research here. Um, as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, introduced several new institutions inside the State Department that went against the grain and that reflected two of her insights. One was that the State Department was not sufficiently invested in planning pre war, you might say, and post war. And so she set up a new bureau called CSO, Conflict and Stabilization Operations, f- to generate research and observation of social and cultural and uh, inter tribal, in some cases, conditions that if they could be attended to would preempt the need for a war, or that after a war, um, if they could be investigated, could enable a war-torn country or region to return to peaceful intercity and intertribal relations. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she created a sub-bureau specifically for the study of religion in those circumstances, something that had never been even dreamt of, I think, in the State Department. So Jerry White, uh, who shared in a Nobel Prize for his work on disarmament and other global activities, was hired by Secretary Clinton to head this religion part of the bureau. And uh, Jerry phoned me, he learned of me from David Ford, and uh, he phoned me and said, uh, could you serve as academic consultant on uh, religion and violence. And so my work with him generated a project that I'm still working on eight years later and that I now have time to reflect on and write about uh, during this time at, at CTI.
0: That's really interesting. And so, yeah, say a bit more about what the project is. And maybe along the way I'd also be interested in what it was like as a scholar to then go and be involved in the you know, Department of State. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did that change the way you look at things, if at all?
1: Well, I, let's say the day before Jerry White called me, I was what I have been, a kind of an out-of-the-public, not very political <laughs> um, scholar of logic, formal reasoning, and scripture. Uh, my teaching involved Muslim, Jewish, and Christian students learning about how to speak in and across scriptural traditions. But I really didn't imagine what was about to happen to me at a later stage in my career. Uh, I learned about politics, I learned in detail about State Department, USAID, uh, Congress, and all such things. And for myself, the biggest shock was I'm somebody who writes sort of abstractly and with great complexity. I learned that I could learn to speak to contemporary issues of public import. I'll tell you about one. Yeah. Uh, along with other work we did, uh, Mr. White asked me one day, uh, Peter, since you were involved in scriptural reasoning, which he knew about, he learned it um, from David Ford. Could you reach into 25 years of working in interreligious peace to? find a tool or an insight that could perform the following. He said, what? He said, we'd like to offer foreign service officers, but also Peace Corps workers outside the government, some way that when they were entering a, an area of c- potential conflict, they could, without more specialization than they already had, they could make wise judgments about which groups they're encountering are religious and is there any way in which they could anticipate which religious groups would be potential resources for their peace work or which might be dangerous or other? So, the work I'm doing now at CTI is completing the work I started with Jerry White, which is to articulate such a method. We think we have one.
0: And what that sort of does, speak more about what it does, it sort of gives you a way to see. Um or at least to think about how you might know in which cases religion uh, violence might yeah. arise. Right. You know, in which cases violence and religion are in some way intertwined.
1: So when Mr. White asked me to do this, I said, "Well, give me a year," and the results of that work um, became a manual at the State Department on religion and conflict. So I poured during that year. I poured over memories and written records taped records of literally several thousand meetings I had had of Muslim Jewish Christian folks in dialogue over 20 years, I was just searching for some identifiable correlation that I could use or that we could use then to answer Jerry White's request. And it took about four months just of mundane work until we stumbled on something. It was a correlation between uh, the number of meanings that any interlocutor, any member of an interreligious or intrareligious group, the number of meanings that member assumed any scriptural word, any powerful religious word would have. What do I mean? Well, we might all assume that very traditional religions think that Scripture or other so- sources of sacred words and instructions, that the words, the holy words of Scripture, have one meaning and you do it. In fact, the correlation I, uh, we discovered is that when participants in an interreligious dialogue think that words only have one meaning, the consequence is great tension or worse. When they think a word, I mean, translated in English like blessing or uh, war, um, or holy war. That when a word, when the interpreter thinks a word will have several meanings, and that different meanings are operative in different contexts, when uh, an interpreter has that belief, it's much more likely that interreligious relations can encourage difference without conflict. So we developed a method that people know modestly trained uh, in the field as Peace Corps workers or as NGO peace building NGO members or as State Department F- FSOs um, that they could do by themselves they could observe the ways in which people in a certain group spoke and identify in that speech a tendency to assign one or many possible meanings to very important sacred words.
0: And is, do you think the reason is because if there's m- more more meanings that they're willing to give to a, a, a word, then they'll be more flexible, more willing to reason with, with outsiders and to sort of say, okay, I, I'm using it this way, but I, I recognize that actually this other way that you've just used it also makes sense. That also could be va- valid, so
1: let me reason along with you. or Josh, you're really putting this well. Any chance after <laughs> this semester finishes you could work with us? <laughs> <laughs> Cause yeah, cause, yeah you, you got it. You got it right. Let me s- explain. First of all, our method was totally by a- discovering something by accident, and this is important in the method. There was no theory behind it. There was no concept behind it. It was just discovering a correlation and then testing for the probability that that correlation was useful. And uh, secondly, it was not that we understood why this is the case. So I have lots of theories, which are fun. Josh, one important thing we discovered is that we didn't have any theory. And that maybe the reason why this approach hadn't been discovered before is that scholars who were studying uh, the way groups behave in violent settings always came to that work with a theory. my hunch, it's just a hunch, is that the the theories interfered with peace-building group scholars or diplomats' observation of something that escaped theory. So we began with an accidental discovery, that's important, this correlation between numbers of meaning and something important. We didn't know what it was. We spent eight years in the field studying um, trial and error. That's very, very important to the method we discovered from the stuff, not from our own ideas. And now we're having ideas about what we discovered. So, you use the right term. We, just for the sake of communication to other scholars and diplomats, we use the word linguistic inflexibility, we just made it up, to describe a group that tends, a whole group, that tends to assign only one meaning to each critical word, words that will affect behavior, and linguistic high linguistic flexibility to a group that may assign more meanings than are useful, and then balanced linguistic flexibility to groups in between, which seem to apply just the range of meanings that allows their speech and their behavior to adjust to changing circumstances without confusion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That yeah. Okay. So why should it be that groups that are inflexible in their language use behave a certain way as we found, and groups that are balanced and groups that are too flexible behave in a certain way? Why should it be? I don't know. We just have very strong evidence after these years that that correlation works. I do have some theories, but I want to make clear that the theories don't generate the project. Discovery does.
0: And you you mentioned there, uh, you alluded there, that one of the other things you found is too many meanings can sort of lead to group disintegration or, or not enough group um, cohesion. Yeah. Is something else you found.
1: So um, much of our research, part of it conducted among religious groups and online uh, in the U.S., and then... Our most important work, field work in Pakistan for eight years among religious and other groups, we were able to observe what actually happened. What kinds of groups were they who were inflexible, the way I defined it, or very flexible? And we eventually discerned nine different categories of flexibility that we were able again and again to observe and to see examples of. So, what we found was this. We found that me- most groups, not all, most groups with highly inflexible use uh, tended to be authoritarian in their inner politics, tended to be ruled or governed by a, a, a one or a couple of very strong leaders, and uh, tended not to change at all when other groups tried to engage them in dialogue and negotiation. We found that groups that were what we called balanced in flexibility, and this is an observation that surprises most folks we talked about. Traditional orthodox groups that were based on age-old traditions tended to be the most balanced in their flexibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know folks like to use the word moderate groups for those who are nonviolent, and they think moderate means very flexible. We found that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Moderate means traditional and learning over centuries how to adapt many kinds of words to different contexts. Modest in this sense, though I don't like the word, uh, it's not necessary, Uh, balanced, I prefer. Balanced groups are also rather stable. They don't really want to change too much, though they can, because they have a working system, and they tend not to be violent. We found that groups that tend to encourage more than balanced meanings. That is, if balance, we found that the balanced meanings mean three to five meanings per term, and later I can explain that if you want. Mm -hmm. We found groups that tend to assign six possible meanings, seven, eight, nine, or more, are usually about to break down as a group. They're becoming anarchic, and that's a surprise. Hmm.
0: That is very interesting, so speak more to what you you just alluded to, the, the three to five meanings.
1: Yeah, again, what we mean, um, I'll say two things. When, when Defense Department money, for example, is uh, given to Beltway companies, they call them, who do computational research, and the companies say, look, you have a lot of money and we can really help you if you give it to us, we can discern by social media, tweets and other things, where there are groups using violent language and we can tell which language is violent, which language is peaceful. So we can advise you on where to stop the trouble or where to encourage nonviolent behavior. Our evidence, and I think it's pretty solid, is that if we're dealing with religious groups or with groups, ideological groups that operate like religious group, Marxist group or something like that, they, they operate in this sense like a religious group. If we're dealing with those groups, it's all we study in our approach, That approach is what I just described by the Beltway companies, it does not work. Um, We found that outsiders, outside the group, Western analysts and others, do not have the ability, no matter how brilliant their methods, they do not have the ability to identify word meanings and associate them with future behavior. Why? Because in a religious vocabulary, a word that sounds in translation like it means violence one has no understanding of what kind of violence it means. It may be a violent struggle with God, or it may be God's violent struggle. We found no correlation between so-called dangerous words and and naughty future behavior. What do we do instead? We drop the effort to explain words, and we we only do quantitative research on the numbers of meanings that a group assigns to its words, so therefore, if a group has a word that translates as violent and it tends to give that word five different possible meanings depending on context, that group, we haven't found a case where that group is most likely violent. If a group uses the word love and it says to its participants, this is the only way to define the word love, that's a troublesome group. You gotta keep an eye out. It's authoritarian, and it it may not be violent, but it really might be, okay?
0: That's very interesting. And I, I think that very much helped me just understand your project, which I've been uh, thinking about uh, over the last few months while we've been here at CTI. And on that point, I'd be interested in um, maybe hearing, maybe just even as a last or second to last question, um, the arc you began at the beginning of this podcast, you, know, you st- started the scriptural reasoning kind of movement Uh, with David Ford here. Dan Hardy. Dan Hardy and you've um, who are both you know Christian theologians
1: Mm -hmm. interestingly um, and they tried to win me over but I stayed Jewish. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs)
0: Um, but yeah so then you you know through that movement and through Jerry White you ended up working on this project with the State Department and then now you've kind of come full circle and and you're working on this and uh, very much contributing to this inquiry on religion and violence so Yeah, I might be interested in what you have have gleaned this semester in the interaction with the other scholars. um.
1: Thank you. um, I'll probably talk in two ways if if I can. The first is the kind of learning we do here. And I I like to share this with your listeners. One of the reasons that CTI, as I'm thinking, as I reflect on it, one of the reasons why CTI has been an intellectual home for me like no other is that... It's not only integrating faith commitment and hard critical science, but it's also nurturing teamworks of study. I mean, we write our own work here, but we're together so often, socially, intellectually, around the table, that our ways of thinking are dialogic. Now, that's really important, I think, because when you're in teamwork and dialogic, Ideally, I think you're using just as much of your own critical reasoning as you would otherwise by yourself, but you're open to differences between possible meanings of your own work. Mm-hmm. And that opening to difference requires dialogic exchange, interpersonal and intertraditional study. So that's one thing I've mm-hmm. observed this semester coming back to CTI. I'm reminded of the importance of that team work dialogue for nurturing reasonings that can address complex problems. Complex problems or some call them wicked problems uh, and uh, director um, uh, Will Storer has his work has reminded me of the importance of that term wicked problems, problems that you can't solve using conventional approaches that in order to solve wicked problems I this semester has taught me it may be necessary to always work in teams because it's the in-between seeing that captures what otherwise we can't even see, let alone resolve, in conventional thinking. So that's my first response to you. And the second? <laughs> yeah, the The second response is that the in-betweenness and this time reflecting on eight years of field work um, has taught me several things about uh, the work that Jerry White uh, initiated, first, that scriptural reasoning, deep dialogue over years among Abrahamic uh, speakers and readers, that scriptural reasoning has significant peace consequences. Not, however, in the literalness of a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian in the middle of the battlefield studying scripture it ain't gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> it may be, however first, that negotiators, which must include members of all the stakeholder groups as much as possible, that negotiators engage in something like scriptural reasoning. That is, they, e- they each bring to the negotiating table their heart's belief. They don't do what typical diplomats do these days in the West, the last hundred years. They say, leave your beliefs at home. They get in the way. What scriptural reasoning suggests to the diplomats, is that if you're dealing with folks with deep value commitments, like religious commitments, don't say that, because you may force them to act neutral, but once the negotiations are done, for example, Camp David, the values are going to come back, and the conflict is going to return, and that's what we see most often happening. So what we're learning first, and I've relearned in looking at this material while at CTI, is that negotiators dealing with religious groups in conflict situations need to allow group members to be part of the negotiation, and they need to allow those members to speak their values just as much as negotiators are speaking their values that neutrality is important. Okay. And that's only partly true. A second reason. I've also discovered some and, and developed this a lot in, dis, in, in, in discussions with you and Will Storr and with the group. I've discovered that this research, m- my research team has been doing on um, numbers of meanings and inflexible and inflexible language, is just one example of what I hope would become, through the work of others, a much broader effort to examine the fecundity or the, the richness of studying the way people use their deepest values as a source of insights into the possibilities of peace in, in situations of war and into those, behave, those group behaviors that may tend away from peace.
0: That's really well said and I think a good point to end on. Um, Thank you so much, Peter, for being on this podcast and for just your ongoing leadership here at CTI um, uh, through the decades and then also very much this semester. I want to thank you for that.
1: Thanks so much, Josh, uh, for this occasion and for working with you. Thanks. To learn
0: more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.